grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. This is Jane and today I'm going to have a conversation with Suze Bednars. Suze is an American mother who lost her daughter to adoption in 1986. I can hardly believe it when I say that Suze and I have known each other for about 15 years now. In around 2005, when Suze began the process of searching for and attempting to reconnect with her daughter, who would have been about 18 at the time, she started a blog to document this journey. I myself was an 18-year-old adoptee at that time on the other side of the world doing the same thing. We would comment on each other's blogs and have kept in touch over the years. I've been fortunate enough to meet Suze in person on two occasions. Most recently, we spent a day together in New York City in 2016, walking around Central Park, discussing this very complex experience of adoption. I've learned a lot from Suze over the years on what it's like to be a mother affected by adoption. And this has aided me greatly, both in my personal and professional journey, working in post-adoption support. I'm so glad that Suze is able to join us and share her story and experiences today. Welcome to the podcast, Suze. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. That's great. And I'm wondering if you, to start off, you'd mind sharing with us a little bit about how adoption came to be part of your life. Absolutely. Um, So as you mentioned, uh, my daughter was born in the 80s. Um, Actually, you mentioned I started looking in 2005, but I had her, I gave birth to her in 1986. Mm -hmm. Um, I got pregnant the summer between my high school graduation and my first uh, month in college. Mm -hmm. So that was that summer. It was the third time I'd had sex, Mm -hmm. the first time, first time unprotected. And it was my high school sweetheart that I had dated for several years. Um, It's probably helpful to know that my family is very conservative Catholic. Mm -hmm. I was raised, my father, I'm first generation on my father's side. He was born in World War War II Poland Mm -hmm. until he was eight years old, um, came here to the States. And then my mother is first generation on her family side. She is Irish. So we joke, I'm kind of a cliche really in the adoption um, community because it's kind of been called double whammied and the most conservative religious ethnic group in the States is very often Polish and Irish. Yeah. Uh, so I say that only because to give context in that sex in general, was really considered a sin. I mean, you didn't have it for pleasure. You had it for procreation only. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, you definitely didn't have it outside of marriage, (laughs) 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 which uh, I obviously did. So I, it took about five months for me to admit to even myself that I was um, pregnant. 
Um, I denied it for the first couple of months. Mm -hmm. My boyfriend and I had broken up. I was utterly alone. And once I started to show, so I became pregnant on August 13th of 1986. And yes, I know the exact date. Mm -hmm. Um, I kept it to myself. I didn't go to college. I declined my acceptance. I was Mm -hmm. working, still living at home with my parents. They didn't know what was going on and why I wasn't going to college, but they just kind of let me do my thing. Um, By Thanksgiving of that year, I was starting to show. Fortunately, it was the 80s and like big baggy shirts and leggings and Mm. certain (laughs) clothing items allowed me to conceal that. Once I acknowledged it to myself, I did consider abortion which is, uh, was illegal, is legal at the time and fortunately still is for now. Mm-hmm. I did go to Planned Parenthood. I ruled that out for myself. Mm-hmm. I wanted her. I wanted to keep her. I wanted to parent mm-hmm. her, despite the fact I had the option to terminate the pregnancy if I wanted to. Yeah. I knew that I had basically committed the worst sin imaginable by my family's values. Um, I knew I would be thrown out. I knew I wouldn't be supported. So I started to make plans to, and this sounds so naive, really. I started to make plans to leave. I don't know mm-hmm. where I thought I was going to go, but you know, that, that naive thing, I'm going to get in a bus and get a job as a waitress or something. Yeah. I just, I was going to run away essentially and find some place and somehow to take care of myself and my child. Unfortunately, my sister um, found out I was pregnant, my older sister, and she told my mother. Wow. Once that happened, um, I really lost all power from my perspective. Um, My mother was the one who contacted the adoption agency. My voice just went away. My my feeling and my ability to speak for myself um, became non-existent. Yeah, that's awful. And so I'm wondering, you know, how it really came about that, that adoption mm-hmm. even came onto the sure. table as an option. Um, that was the only option from my parent, my mother's perspective. Yeah. I, can, I can see myself right now in my uh, childhood home, curling my hair uh, in the bathroom. And she came into the doorway and said, that's what you're going to do, right? Wow. And very firm. Yeah. And, and <laughs> what option did I have? She, mm. she didn't sit down with me. She didn't tell my dad. She didn't call my boyfriend's family. It was, you're going away and we're not telling anybody. Um, I mean, my own siblings didn't know what happened to me. I mean, I was shipped away. Mm. And my sister, who I shared a bedroom with, was never told where I went and why, despite the fact she had been hearing me cry myself to sleep mm. for four months. Yeah. So she knew at 13 something was wrong, yeah. but nobody told her what. Wow. Just the impacts on, as you say, it's not just on you, it's on other right. family members. And so then what was your experience when you, you went away, you were sent away? What yeah. Happened? So my mother contacted um, an agency that had an advertisement in our local yellow pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Bizarre. Like that's mm-hmm. where you find a place to give your baby away in the yellow oh pages. Goodness. They arranged for us to, they flew somebody out to Connecticut where I lived, Mm -hmm. um, met my mother and I in an empty office (laughs) that they must have somehow gotten access to. Mm -hmm. Um, I sat to the side and this gentleman um, spent the entire hour or two talking to my mother, making plans for what they would do with and to me and how quickly Mm -hmm. and what my mother's obligation was. And that was uh, end of November of 86. Wow. And by, Jan- by January, I was on a plane to Chicago, Illinois. So that's about a thousand miles from where I lived. Gosh. 
um, the agency flew me to a maternity home in the north side of Chicago, where I lived for five months. Oh my goodness. So away from anyone that you knew? There was no one there. I'd never, I'd never been on a plane before. That was the first time I'd yeah. been on a plane. I'd never been that yes. far away. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know who was picking me up on the other side. Yeah. Um, it was just like I was going away. And yeah. And when you got there and in the months that followed this, um, mm-hmm. how did you cope with this? What did you do? <laughs> I tried my best to be a good girl because clearly I had been a very bad girl. Um, I became very attached to my caseworker for the agency. Mm -hmm. Um, She would visit with me once a week, take me out to lunch, buy me clothes, Mm. um, take me to dinner. She was my only real contact that I had with, or at least with somebody I thought cared about me. Mm. Turns out she didn't. Um, I, I was required to get a job. So we were required to pay for our stay in the maternity home. Okay. which was um, a Catholic, well, a Catholic sponsored home, despite the fact there was multiple agencies and denominations. There was about mm-hmm. 25 women between the ages of 18 and 25 that were staying there. Um, and so I, I worked, I worked at a hospital, the hospital wow. I ended up delivering in. Um, I took public transit. I mean, it was in a city. I never had lived, been in a city. I, I mean, it was just amazing to think about how I survived really. But I was so afraid that if I wasn't good and I didn't do everything I was supposed to do, that they were going to throw me out as well. And then I would be a thousand miles from home on the streets of Chicago with nothing, with no job, no house, no support, didn't know anybody. My goodness. And what is just mind blowing to me is this is 1986. This is Mm -hmm. not um, because in Australia, you know, we've had similar scenarios here with maternity homes but but you know a lot of people will say by the 80s by the late 80s um, things had improved this is 1986 and you're yeah I even hear that myself I often hear from you know what we call in the states and I don't know if you have the same terminology in Australia but you know you often hear the terminology of baby scoop era that those moms go ahead but it's like the 50s, 60s, 70s or whatever, mm. those moms really had no choice and, and they seem to get more empathy or they seem to think their mm. pain is greater and that those of us who came later had it mm. easier. I rail against that and I strongly resist that because I don't think it's true. First of all, mm. I lived it. Yeah. I didn't have an option. I didn't have a choice. I wasn't yeah. given counseling. I wasn't given parenting options. I wasn't told, you know, how I could keep her. Mm. Um, I was greatly shamed. I don't think it was that different. Um, yeah. and, and in reality, it doesn't matter even if it was, because in the end, what happened is we both, all mothers lost their children against That's their right. will. Yeah. And it's not a game of whose pain is greater or lesser. No. It's the same pain um, of losing your child against your will. Absolutely. And, and so many issues you're outlining with the family. I mean, I doubt that any mother would have lost, any mother that wanted to keep her baby um, would not have lost their child if their family had supported them. Um, and secondly, just what right. you're saying about the caseworker. I mean, that mm-hmm. in itself is really something to come to terms with. Someone you thought you could mm-hmm. trust, someone who you thought was on your side. How did you come to that realization over the years or months or what was the That time? she wasn't? <laughs> yeah, that actually yeah. something has happened to me here that wasn't right. Yeah, I knew I have, have actually written, and you may have read this when you were on my blog, 
uh, a month before my daughter was born, I finally got up the nerve to tell Colleen, who was my caseworker, that I never wanted to do this. I didn't want to do this. And I thought I could trust her. And I really thought she cared about me. So I finally felt safe to tell somebody like, no, I don't want to do this. And I remember so vividly, we were in a pizza place on the north side, about two, two blocks from the maternity home having lunch. And I mustered up all my energy and strength. And I just said, I've changed my mind. I don't mm. want to do this. Mm. And she took in a very deep breath <laughs> and mm. held it. And then she said, that's not an option. Oh, gosh. And I said, what? <laughs> she said, if you don't sign the papers, we will sue you and we will sue your parents. And she told me at the time that my mother signed a promissory note guaranteeing that I would give them my child and that my mother knew if I didn't, that they would sue my parents. Mm. I, I just, I felt like the wind had been knocked out of me. You know, yeah. like when you fall really hard and you can't yeah. catch your breath. Yeah. That's exactly what I felt. Cause I was just shocked, shocked mm. that mm. she would say that to me, that I could be sued, that my mother signed a promissory note. Um, I, I've often said as recent as a week ago to my own therapist that that was the first time I, I surrendered my daughter before yeah. she was even born, that yeah. I just gave up, that I, yeah. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Who would know what to do if someone's threatening to sue you and telling yeah. and you that you have said, no choice? And she did say, she went on to say that if I chose to pursue that, she would immediately stop our relationship and I would yeah. be removed from the maternity home and homeless on the streets of Chicago. Which was your fear that you just said a minute ago, (laughs) which is your fear. If you didn't do the right thing, you'd be thrown out. Exactly. And your parents, you couldn't go home. So what were you going to do? Well, it was such a great fear tactic that was used on me because one might Mm. think, you know, that I would have run to the back to the maternity home, would have called my mother, would have challenged my mother, would have asked my mother. I didn't do that. I was Mm. so intimidated. Mm. I felt so lost and so alone by both, you know, my parents who had sent me here, by the boyfriend who was non-existent, by now the one person I thought had a shred of caring for me just threatened me. Jeez. And, you know, here, what what you call the baby scoop era, that's, you know, here we've had an apology. It's called forced adoption. And if that's mm-hmm. not forced, I don't know what is. That just sounds, yeah. Yeah. So... Is there anything you want to say about, I guess, the period where you actually, you know, gave birth to your daughter? Because, and then mm-hmm. I, you know, want to ask you about down the track, but is there anything, you know, you'd say about that actual period of time when you'd given birth? And yeah, I think it's one of the most tragic and sad events of my life and in any woman's life to give birth alone. Mm to be surrounded by people that don't care about you, that see Mm -hmm. you as an object, Mm -hmm. uh, that don't care about your feelings, that whisper about you in the hall, that write um, BFA on your card, baby for adoption, Mm -hmm. um, that tell you you're lucky that they gave you an episiotomy, that they should have Mm -hmm. let you stay unstitched. I mean, the cruelty that is, that was, you know, expressed, to me and to other members of the maternity home I was in just defies my imagination Mm. and again that was 1986 yeah it's just honestly (laughs) mind-blowing so after that had happened and you did you get to see your daughter at all or I I did I had her I was allowed (laughs) I had the 
the uh, benefit, as they told me. I was lucky yeah. enough that the agency was going to let me have her for three days, the three okay. days I was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did, and I demanded she stay wow. with me. She was in the room the whole time. Wow. Uh, and I basically held her for three days straight. Oh, gosh. <sighs> and then what happened? They, on the third yeah, day. So, the uh, that's when all the paperwork started and I can okay. remember like the hospital staff coming in with like you know birth certificate paperwork and other things that I had to fill out just mm-hmm. normal hospital stuff they they took pictures of her um the hospital okay. photographer which I still have mm-hmm. um and I remember two things so clearly uh my mother was there by the way my mother flew okay. in when I was in labor okay. so um she had also been there on the second day and the third day the third day when the hospital like administration person came in to do birth certificate information, I was filling out my name and I went to fill out her father's name. And yeah. the lady was like, no, no, you can't do that. And oh. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, is he here? And I was like, well, no. She's like, well, then we have to write father unknown. <gasps> oh. I go, but I know who it is. And he signed papers with the agency. They know who he is. Yeah. Why would you put on her birth certificate that I didn't know who the father was? Yeah. I mean, I was just so horrified. Yeah. And f- again, felt so powerless that they were going to make me look bad in yeah. a legal document like I didn't know who the father was. Mm. But because he wasn't there to sign to claim paternity, they didn't put his name there. And similar things happened in Australia. And I, I don't know why. It's It's just, (laughs) and then that, of course, not to jump too far ahead, but that causes problems down the line um, for Mm -hmm. adopted people that might want to know who the father is anyway. And as you say, (laughs) looks like the mother didn't know who he was when she did. (laughs) Was it probably in a relationship with him? (laughs) Exactly. So that was very disturbing to me. And then the... I signed the papers on day three in the hospital, still in my hospital gown, in my bed. I'd never had, you know, mm-hmm. any explanation of the papers. I didn't know what they were. I didn't, you know, it was one single document, um, irrevocable, you know, surrender for adoption or something like that, that I signed. My mother was next to my bed. And I remember her saying, you're going to do this, right? Mm. <laughs> or you want to do this, right? And she insists to this day that that was an opening for me to change my mind. But the tone of her voice mm-hmm. <laughs> was so like aggressive. It yeah. didn't come across like as kind or supportive of, are mm. you sure? Have you yeah. thought, you know, it was, you're doing this now. You're signing this, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I signed it. I also wrote a letter. They allowed me to write her a letter, which I okay. gave to them on that day. Yeah. Um, retrospectively. And I, and I, wrote it twice. I kept a written copy for myself of the exact same thing so I could match them up in the future if she ever got it to see that it was the same one. What makes me sad is even that silly letter sounds so proper and good girl and businesslike and cold Mm -hmm. because I knew they were going to read it and they were going to filter it. And I knew her adoptive parents were going to read it. So I wanted to be a good girl. I wanted to be somebody that they would like and that they would Mm. respect. And I, it's, it sounds very cold and very proper. I I look at it now, my duplicate, and it's like, I'm embarrassed by it. (laughs) That's awful. Do you know if she ever read the letter? I have no idea if she got any of that. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, I'm wondering, so then this is probably an emotional top, you know, very emotional question, but do you remember the last time you saw her as a baby? Um, 
did what did they do did they just pick her up and take her out of the room <laughs> yeah they just took her um i can see myself again at the windows of st joseph hospital in chicago and standing there holding her telling her things mm. crying my tears like my tears coming off my face landing on her face mm. and in the background playing on a crackly hospital bed a radio was whitney houston's greatest love of all that song oh. from the 80s which still makes me choke up because the lyrics of it. So I kind of think that's our song. That's, that's our yeah. song because that's the last thing I heard before they took her away. That is quite beautiful, but also just terrible. In the months and particularly the years that followed, um, what did all of this mean for your life? And when did the idea of search and reunion become a possibility in your mind? I signed um, a registry form the same time I signed her surrender forms mm -hmm. with the Illinois registry because mm -hmm. my caseworker, again, led me to falsely believe that at 18, she would be able to find me, that they would give her this information that she could. So they gave me this document, which to this day, I don't even know if it's real, <laughs> that I signed in duplicate and one Colleen took and one I kept, which basically was supposedly authorizing the Illinois adoption option and medical registry to release my name when she was 18. Okay. Um, so I, I, from the day I let her go, I planned on finding her again. I mean, yeah. it was, that was, <laughs> it was never my that intent. Was the you know, plan. Yep. I, I didn't go through all of that and, and choose to have a child to give it away to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it was always my plan to find her, which as you mentioned in the opening, um, I did immediately start when she, as soon as she turned 18. Wow. And how did you go about that? Um, yeah, that's kind of a fascinating story. Um, so yeah. the agency made me believe I picked the family. So they presented to me three handwritten profiles mm -hmm. of three families. And they said, read these. And this was, of course, to make me feel like I was empowered and I had some you know, control over it. Um, read these three profiles and whichever one you like best, that's who we'll give your baby to. Mm. So um, I picked a particular one that had somewhat similar background um, and had things that spoke to me, like they were mm -hmm. going to adopt other children. She wouldn't be an only child. They had similar ethnic background. They had a similar mm -hmm. religious background, um, things that, you know, my family valued or I valued. Interestingly enough, on the third handwritten page, so think of yellow legal paper, mm -hmm. and it was my caseworker's handwriting. So she was clearly copying from like formal files the agency had. A last name was written. Wow. <laughs> I don't to this day know if it was intentional or just a complete oversight, but I purposely picked that family at that time yes. because I saw a last name yeah. and I never, I never told her I saw that last name. I just said, yeah. And as it turned out, they also had the same background or Catholic, et cetera. But so I kept that. I still have it right now in this box behind me in my drawer. Yeah. Um, and when I started looking for her at those, this was like before Facebook, right? So it's like 2005 and earlier. Yeah. Um, we used to use this old school online database called Ameridex. And you could get a listing of everybody's names based upon their birth date mm -hmm. for the entire United States. Wow. So I paid money and I put in a search for females born on her birth date. Yep. And then I scrolled through hundreds of pages and I found someone with that same name, that last name. Wow. <laughs> so her, her birthday, the alleged adoptive parent's last name, and what we used to do in those days is then you send like these blind letters. 
these mm-hmm. really like one page blind letter. Like I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing here. It was actually much yeah. more proper as a theme here. I was much, yeah. <laughs> but it was like, you know, basically it was a reach out to her directly. I mailed these blind letters to her and other people that I thought might've met the criteria, anyone born on that birthday. Mm. But this one was a strong um, possibility, obviously for the last name. I mailed this generic letter. I then continued searching more. So as it turned out, this young lady um, lived in two states away from me. So I'm in Connecticut and, you know, um, so it was very close to me. It was easy for me to drive there. So I kept searching on this young lady's name. Um, I was able to find the town. I was Mm -hmm. able to find the high schools. Mm -hmm. You know, you just narrowed down all these things. Um, And it turned out eventually to be here, obviously. Unbelievable. That's an amazing story because, you know, I'm aware that in the US, not everyone is so lucky because, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, New York only just opened um, adoption records, right? Like last right. year. Or so. <laughs> so, and there's so many, it varies by state, right? It's not federal. Yeah. So it's not like a federal government yeah, thing. Every here. state has different rules um, where you go. Some are open, some are not. Some are partially open, depending yeah. upon how old you are. There's all sorts of restrictions. It's a really controversial yeah. issue. So another thing I'd love to know is what support did you or did you not have in this process? Even when you mentioned the blind letters, where did you get that idea from? Um, Uh, I did it all secretively, entirely on my own. I had no support other than like some online communities. So I had founded, um, I founded a Yahoo group um, for women and adoptees who had um, been you know, impacted by the same agency that I had surrendered my daughter to. Mm -hmm. So I had this online group that I led um, and I became a search angel for, and I ended up reuniting 200 um, mothers and children through that group. But um, it was kind of like crowdsourcing, you know, sharing with other people in the same position. What did you do? How did you do this? Yeah. You know, early internet. So it was really kind of support groups um, later on blogs. But by the time I was blogging, I had found her. Yeah. but mostly it was entirely on my own, just doing, you know, research, um, yeah. finding things out and then, you know, doing what I could to. Yeah. It's it what we'd yeah. call peer support. It's, it's just people helping each other. There's no, I, I don't know even now if there's actually any real, certainly not, I don't think any government funded support, but um, it's people coming together and right. helping right. each other. Wow. And, and then, and as I, you say, you led some of that. Yeah. And I also had to, you know, I was still under the impression that I was doing something bad, you know, you mm. weren't supposed to find them. Right. Um, so I had to be very secretive and in the dark. My mother had told me that I was selfish, that she was mm. probably having a great life without me. And why would mm. I want to ruin that? Mm. Um, my, my first husband at the time was very ashamed. Um, and I didn't use his name. I married first mm-hmm. name, you know, when I was doing my online work because he was ashamed of that. So I wasn't yeah. allowed to use my married name. So even then I was, you know, very much in the closet. I had to do yeah. it all on my own because no one yeah. supported me, friends or family, you know, for that. Wow. And so by now it's 2005. Mm-hmm. Is this what you're saying? Even by that point, close family yeah. are not supporting you. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I remember yeah. telling my father um, of all people mm. that I found her. And I was always very cautious early on. I didn't talk a lot about her with my family because I would not get positive comments. Um, so again, I kept it all to myself, but I did at one point have a conversation with my father 
because he'd heard from my mother that I'd found her and my dad was on our front porch and he was like, I can't believe you found her. How did you, he was just kind of amazed. My dad okay. was a very intelligent man. He was like amazed. Yeah. And then I, I kind of explained the process to him and um, he got very quiet and his voice changed to like a little boy. And he said, do you think you could find my dad? Oh, wow. <laughs> Because my dad, he's the Polish one, isn't he? Yes, my whole... dad's father mm-hmm. was in a concentration camp. My mm-hmm. grandmother was also a single mother, um, and never saw her, you know, my dad's father after he was captured. Wow! And my dad never knew the story, never knew where he was, never knew if he died. So that just like kind of breaks my heart too. It, that yeah, you know, even at his age, he mm. had a wanting to know his dad. Family, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. So I'm wondering. If you can just tell us a bit more about, so you sent these blind letters, one went mm-hmm. to your daughter, one went maybe to a couple of other people, mm-hmm. then what happened? So the, there were people who were the wrong people and they were so kind, they would no. actually write me back or, yeah. um, you know, email me and say, nope, it's not me, but I wish you luck. I hope, you know, yeah. I hope you find her. So that was really kind of really yeah. a nice positive um, experience. I never heard from her in response to that letter, but what I kept doing was poking at that particular person. So Mm -hmm. my ex-husband actually drove to her state and went to her high school, talked himself into the high school library with the janitor and got a picture of this girl that we thought was my daughter. He called me from his office and he said, it's totally her. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I'll be home soon, but I have a picture. She looks just like you. And he came home and he showed me the picture and I wasn't convinced. I said, nah, I don't see her. He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, look at that smile. That's totally your smile. And I'm like, nah, I don't see, like, I just didn't feel it at that first picture. Then my younger sister, the one who heard me cry myself to sleep for four months before I was sent away, she was also kind of in on the search with me. And she did more searching, um, different Googling, different keywords. Mm -hmm. She found a PDF newsletter from my daughter's high school, Mm -hmm. had a different picture in it. And my sister called me. I was at my office and she's like, I got her. (laughs) Like, what do you mean you got her? She's like, I'm sending you something via email right now. Be prepared. So she sent it to my work email. I opened it up and I immediately, I felt like a tidal wave hit me. Like mm-hmm. just, there was no doubt. The smile, the hair, her education, her interests, her extra, they were all me. I literally fell off my chair at my office. Um, <laughs> I was so like, it was almost like a panic attack of some mm. sorts. I had to go to the ladies room because I then started vomiting and crying. Wow. It was just such a visceral physical reaction um, that I knew then that was her. And um, an adoptee friend of mine that I had also reunited with her mother lived in the same state and was still also in college. So at this point, my daughter mm-hmm. was a freshman in college. My friend, my adoptee friend who was also in college, was able to get into the college systems of emails and found, because in this newsletter for the high school, it said Mm. where my daughter was going to college. Mm. So my adoptee friend found her email at her college, and I I emailed my daughter at college. Wow. That That was the first contact we really had. Okay. So by this point, you'd already sent the blind letter, but you'd got no response to that. You've then ascertained it's her. And then what happened when you sent this email? 
Um, she responded. She said, yes, okay. it was very brief. Um, she okay. said, yes, yes, it's me. Um, yes, I got your letter and my parents didn't appreciate it. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> um, and wow. I was like, she was always very guarded, um, yeah. didn't really share a lot, wasn't really open to reunion, um, told me to never mail things to her parents again, that they don't yeah. appreciate my existence. Um, mm. So we didn't, we had a few conversations early on, and this was yeah. June, June of 2005, June 28th okay. was the exact day that I had contact. Um, we probably talked a few, very light. She allowed and me to send And this is by email, right? Yeah. Yeah. We never spoke. She would never, she's to this day, this is 15 years, mm. 16 this year. Um, we've never spoken on the phone. We've never had yeah. a face-to-face. She let me have a little more contact early on when she was in college. Mm. I was allowed to, to mail like birthday or Christmas gifts to her or cards. She allowed mm. me to do that. Um, she didn't really communicate much at all, but I was mm-hmm. allowed um, to send her things while she was in college. But then after she graduated and she went back home, I was not allowed to be in communication with her because her right. parents would- Because she's back at her home address. Right. And what I did find out, she did share with me, is that that letter did get to her house. Mm-hmm. Her, par- her parents opened it and kept it from her. Oh. So, so she did- Yeah. yeah. They, she didn't find out till months afterwards, and she apparently had a very big argument with her parents um, yeah. about it, that it was private, and mm. she was 18 now, and it should have been given to her, but they opened it and kept it. You know what I'm kind of hearing, and this is um, obviously can't speak for your daughter at all, but right. I'm almost hearing like what you were describing before about being a good girl mm. and sort of yes. um, <laughs> doing, you know, having that resistance inside you, but at that point not um, expressing that. And I'm sort of hearing that there were all these influences going on for her that she's and she did actually probably share that. navigating. Yeah. I do have a letter. She did write me a very long letter once that mm. she sent to me via email too. And in that she did say that um, no matter what I do, somebody's going to be hurt. If I mm-hmm. talk to you, my parents are going to be hurt. Mm-hmm. If I don't talk to you, then you're going to be hurt. So she does yeah. nothing. Yeah. And a lot of this, it's adoption. I mean, if you're going to, you know, it's, it's just everybody caught up in this adoption mm-hmm. that almost um, tries to force you to pick sides or yes, um, it's just awful. So at what point, um, well, I guess maybe there was no real point. I was going to say at what point did you sort of um, come to the realisation, look, this is not looking like it's going to happen. But mm-hmm. it sounds like the whole way through that was I don't, I don't know if I've even fully gotten there yet. I mean, I still good. have. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <Hope> <laughs> <know>. is great. <laughs> um, going on 16 years, yeah. I still have the, the door open for her. I will never not welcome yeah. her. Um, I'm no longer ashamed. I no longer keep her a secret. I mean, as you know, I've spoken at mm. conferences across the U.S. I blogged very openly about it. Um, so she'll always be welcome. Um, What I had to learn to accept is that her behavior and her position is about her and not about me. Like Mm. I I couldn't, you know, early on, I took it very strongly. It was another person who didn't want me, who didn't love me, Mm. who didn't care about me, who, you know, I just made it too personal. And it's taken me many years in therapy to realize, no, I'm a really good person. I'm a good mom to my parented children. I've been good to her. I've, you know, compared to other people that I know have gone through a reunion. 
So I've had to like personally forgive myself and let her deal with her stuff. And if, and when she wants my participation or she needs something, um, I'm here for her. I do believe, I mean, she's given me subtle signs through the years that make me think she's not totally shut off. For example, when you may recall my oldest son suffered a a traumatic brain injury about six years ago. And during his recovery, odd things popped up and the doctors kept asking me if anyone else in the family had this or had that. Mm. Well, there was a possibility she might've had this or that, Mm. but I would never know. So I did write her and and Mm. I said, I realize I have no right to ask you this, but your brother had a bad accident and we've, we have some health questions and the doctors Mm. are asking if anyone's ever had, you know, A, B or C. And she was kind enough to respond to me and share a lot of her personal health history, which if she was awful, she didn't, she wouldn't do that. She wouldn't, you know, respond to me. Um, I also know that she, this last fall, she had her DNA tested. <laughs> she didn't yeah. like how that happened um, because what happened is the service notified me mm. and said, oh, this is your daughter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't, I don't Are we think talking about like this geneal- online genealogy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like 23 or me or yeah. my heritage, et cetera. Yeah. She did one of those to get yeah. her DNA, like I guess her medical history yeah. or her ethnic background. Yeah. And they sent it to me as well that yeah. we were a match. So <laughs> I... I emailed her, which I don't do regularly anymore. And I said, uh, well, I got, I was notified by this. If you have any additional questions, you know, more than happy to answer them. Yeah. Uh, that made her angry. And I think she was kind of angry at herself that the agency or the company yeah, okay. flagged me and sent me the email. She oh. thought she was doing it secretly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I do be, see yeah. subtle hints yeah. or maybe I'm too hopeful. Who knows? No, but I also think uh, something that we sort of talk about a lot um, at Jigsaw is the seven core issues of adoption. I don't know if you've read any of that literature, but control is one of them. And I, I, I hear this a lot and I can probably relate to some of it that you want to be as adoptees and also as mothers, it affects everyone. Like we want to be in control of, mm-hmm. um, of course, yeah. who knows what and how things happen, particularly when you've lost control, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the past. So the holding tightly to it. So that makes a lot of sense. But um, no, I think that's really that sort of hope because I do, I, I hear stories all the time that things, you know, things happen in life and, mm-hmm. and you come to some realization or you come to some opening that wasn't there before. Um, right, right. But I think living in that ambiguity is also really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And it's that thing of disenfranchised grief or ambiguous loss mm-hmm. where yep. how are you meant to, cause I asked you that question, when did you realize? And well, of course that was actually a silly question because it, there's no end point. There's, there's always hope, yeah. I guess, unless someone passes away, which is a right. final loss, you never know what's going to happen next. Do you live with this? Do you accept that, you know, this is a loss or do you hold that hope and how strongly do you hold that hope? So I guess I'm wondering any, any wisdom that you can <laughs> from your lived experience, because there are a lot of people in this situation. 
Um, yeah, I one thing that helps me, um, I again, I said I needed to work on myself and give myself more credit because that rejection from her triggered those old rejection mm. of my being sent away, of my boyfriend, you know, her father, you know, abandoning me. It, it's really mm. hard to, it's like uh, sometimes I don't, I don't know which lens I'm looking through and they kind of all yeah. blend together. So it's important, it was important for me to kind of separate you know, that's not about me. The way she's behaving is not about me. I'm a good person, I'm, you yeah. know, and not allow that to happen. Um, it was also really important for me to focus on the people who do love me that are yeah. in my life on a day-to-day yeah. basis, because I became too obsessed. My, my boys were young mm-hmm. um, when I found her and I told her, told them about her. And I know because I've heard it from my ex-husband as well. I was obsessed. I spent okay. so much time either overtly or covertly thinking, doing just for her at the expense of the people that were in my life today who did love me and who wanted me to be Mm. there. I really had to focus on the people that were here and present for me as opposed to being obsessed with her and and hoping and wishing and trying to get her to care. Wow. So really focusing in on the love that, that is Mm -hmm. there and I guess Mm -hmm. letting that in, but cultivating those relations. Exactly. As I mentioned to you numerous times, I've also, (laughs) I've been in therapy since the day I surrendered her. Mm. I did struggle with suicidal ideation um, Mm -hmm. the first year or two afterwards. And I saw, um, I immediately got myself a a psychiatrist and a therapist. And I have been in therapy for, you know, 16 years since I surrendered Mm. her to deal with it. And how, what, what have been some of the most helpful things that have come Mm. out of that? Um, Um. So the first therapist I attempted to see in Chicago was a psychiatrist. I remember his name. I won't say it. (laughs) um, Who was an older white man who didn't understand what my problem was and Mm. told me that from his perspective, I should be thankful that somebody wanted a child born to a girl like me. Oh, dear. A damaging message. Yeah. He didn't have time for me in his schedule, but he would refer me to a student that was studying under him. And I saw that gentleman for a while. Um, Through the years, I've seen numerous therapists. I've Mm -hmm. been on and off medication at times for anxiety Mm -hmm. and depression. Um, In my most recent years, I've had a very good therapist. And that Mm -hmm. for me was critical, was just that validation. And she's specifically a trauma therapist. Right. Yeah. What I needed. Um, so she's very, very skilled in trauma and many different techniques. And between her and previous therapists, I have tried many. <laughs> yeah. I've tried EMDR. I've tried CBT. I've done all sorts of things. Um, I'm finding with her what just seems to be working. Well, it's a kind of a combination, a blended mm-hmm. approach for me. She does mm-hmm. art therapy with me. Wow. We do meditation. We do CBT. I mean, she's just really, really good. Right. Yeah. So I, I encourage anyone that is having that struggle to definitely seek therapy and don't settle if it's not working if it's not yeah. fit find somebody else you know that is really great to hear because you know there's <laughs> i'm aware i guess through our contact over the years of all the um external things you've done all the advocacy mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. the blogging mm-hmm. the groups but actually this is the internal and if mm-hmm. i think if you don't do both um if you're too focused on trying to change the world or maybe mm-hmm. too focused on yeah. self and self-blame, that's not going to be helpful. But doing both um, is probably a really great um, combination mm-hmm. to not neglect um, 
the internal as well and get yeah, it was it was interestingly actually my advocacy or some of the groups that I founded and that mm. I, the, the network I had that really forced me to deal with my own stuff as opposed mm. to the external stuff because what I found is I was kind of maturing and doing my own process um they some of the groups that I had founded they didn't like what I was saying that they okay. felt some of the adoptees on the list were like you're too critical you're too judgmental you're too negative mm. and, and I got very frustrated like I've listened to you for mm. 10 years you know yeah. <laughs> why can't I speak now like I just felt and here I am in another place where my voice is not being heard it's not mm. welcome and that's when I really extracted myself both from my blog and from some of my more activities yeah. speaking etc because I thought you know how can I expect anyone else externally to be paying attention to me and my voice if I'm not valuing it, wow. if I'm not paying attention to my voice. And Definitely. that's really something strangely that I, with my current therapist, what I had to, she'll ask me, she's like, whose voice are you hearing? Whose mm. voice are you hearing in your head? Is it yours or is it your father's or your boyfriend's? Wow. Or your... So she always kind of brings me back to like, whose voice am I listening to? And that's what I had to do in recent years was listen and trust myself. And that's given me the most amount of growth. That is, that just sounds really powerful. That makes so much sense. I've never looked, thought of it that way or looked at it that mm -hmm. way before. I hope that will, yeah, benefit people listening. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll ask you before we finish, you know, if there's mm -hmm. anything you'd like to add, but um, I guess I'll ask one final question, which is I guess I'm very aware that the Australian and the US mm -hmm. context in regards to adoption are radically different. Mm -hmm. um, and, look, they've probably been different um, for a long time because in Australia, uh, not every state, but most states, adoption has always been um, through the government. So there's always been that kind of central body and there's maybe a bit more accountability. And then mm -hmm, when it comes mm -hmm. to records, you know, we're about to celebrate actually um, the 30th anniversary of in my state, the records, you know, being opened, mm -hmm. um, which is just amazing. And it's, and I feel very fortunate that, I've benefited, I guess, from all those advocates that push for that mm -hmm. to happen. But yeah, is there anything you would like to see happen in the US that you think probably a lot, a long list? But there is a very long list. Um, as, as you pointed out, it is not, um, the laws vary by state. Um, mm -hmm. Just to give you an example, uh, mm -hmm. the agency that was advertising in Connecticut had to intentionally get me out of the state of Connecticut in order to get my child because they were barred from doing business in the state of Connecticut. Oh my so they had to remove me. So it's very much a for-profit industry. You know, certainly there are government mm -hmm. and foster agencies and things like that. Mm -hmm. But my agency was a private agency mm -hmm. that was um, what's called a gray market baby broker, which we didn't know. They, um, if you had the right amount of money, you got a baby very quickly. Their mm -hmm. home studies were done by their own people. Um, they weren't outside agencies. My, um, my daughters, typically they catered to families that had aged out of the, the normal agencies because they were too old, but they had a lot of money. So, you know, wow. you give the agency $50,000 and you have a baby in 30 days. Wow. So um, I would certainly like to see the money taken out of adoption yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, children are not objects to be bought and sold. Yeah. Um, it, it creates coercive tendencies. It makes promises. It, it's just a market economy that needs mm. to go away. Mm. It is not something that caters to truly finding families for children that truly need them. It no. finds babies for wealthy families. That's and I have... Sad. 
very big objection to that because I lived it. I, I mean, that's exactly yeah. what my agency did. Take the money out of adoption. <laughs> make it, it sounds like take the money out, but make it about the children. Make exactly. It about what a child is needing. The minute it's and, about finding children for parents, whoa, that's. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then I also, I mean, I'm not, many people think I'm anti-adoption and I'm really not. Mm-hmm. I do believe there are circumstances where it may be necessary, mm. but even under those circumstances, I believe records should be opened, uh, ties to the original family, you know, the family of origin should be maintained mm. and available to that child. Um, we aren't doing enough to maintain those ties to really do the best we can to integrate that child's experience, mm. you know, that they, that they have the option to realize their adoptive and their biological families. It's still very yeah. secretive and it's very much geared and catered towards adoptive families, not yeah. at all the family of origin and certainly not the child, which no. is what it's supposed to be. And am I right in what I'm hearing? There's not really... So it sounds like there's certainly not, um, and, they, and I could be wrong, government-funded support for people in a situation like you. Like you have had to pay a therapist for 16 yes. years to deal with what has happened. Is there yeah. any such thing that you're aware of? No, not that I'm aware of. Uh, in fact, when I originally went, when I was going to keep my daughter, mm. I actually went to um, the welfare office, which is mm. what it's called in, in Connecticut. Mm. We went for welfare to see if I could get, you know, government assistance for food stamps or housing, mm. et cetera. And I had a uh, woman that worked at the office tell me that white girls like me didn't qualify for that type of oh assistance. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I believed her because um, I was shamed. Yeah. I was like, yeah. you know, how dare I yeah. um, expect that I could get money from the state that to help. support yeah. me to keep my child? However, the interesting thing you may know in the States, adoptive parents get tax credits from their income tax if they've adopted up to $14,000. Imagine if we gave single expectant mothers that kind of money from the government yeah. to keep their child. If we gave them housing for a year, if we gave them food for a year, if we helped them, you know, be on their own, how wow. many children would not be put up for adoption or taken from Just, their families? Wow. Didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. Is that under the pretense that they've done a, a great thing and a helpful thing by adopting a child? <laughs> or <laughs> what, what is the rationale behind that? Well, I mean, my personal, I mean, there's, there's many different explanations for it. Um, mm-hmm. One that I grasp tightly onto is the fact that we are such a religious country okay and there's such a strong force from the christian evangelicals from adoption perspective so they're really forcing it um there's no they think they're doing god's plan they're doing god's work they're saving babies um and our government sadly is is very heavily religious um Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry to hear that there's you know, <laughs> not more support on this side of people impacted by adoption, even at the other end, even at this end of you know where you are now and where an adult adoptee might be now. Um, it sounds like it's very much. I wouldn't either. even know where to go. I regularly no. get questions from friends, adoptees especially, who are like, mm. "I have an adoptee who's looking for an adoption, mm. you know, trained therapist." Yeah. Because there's so few. There's just not enough of them yeah. who really understand the complexities. And many yeah. times, you'll be told, like me, like I was, like, "Oh, get over yourself. You should be mm. glad your parents. You know, be grateful to your adoptive parents." Um, they just don't really understand the the trauma behind it. Yeah. Wow, I think there's similar but different issues, but those Mm. systemic um, 
issues are huge. You know, I think I, I feel very, very, very fortunate to be in Australia. If I have to be impacted, by yeah, yeah. I feel that's not saying it's perfect. It's not. Mm-hmm. But to feel that the government's taken responsibility, the government said they're sorry, they're funding mm-hmm. support services, which is, you know, what I work for. There's ability to access information. Um more and more education it's just such a relief and I hope in time um, things can shift in the U.S. as well keep keep speaking about it but yeah that's really concerning is there anything you'd like to add is there anything gosh no I I feel like I I feel like I've kind of rambled on you I don't know if we covered all the points you wanted to cover um, but I definitely appreciate the opportunity and certainly make myself available for follow-up or questions you're you're welcome to share my email or my blog I know you have that okay that would be great we'll share your blog archived yeah it's still live but I'm just not having I'm not taking comments because I'm not like really actively participating but I had been encouraged by the audience of my readers to leave it live for other people to benefit from so it is still available that's fantastic yeah and um you said you make yourself available can people oh they can't comment through the blog um but my email address is on the front page of the blog and and I just say people are welcome to email me if they want to yeah that's lovely You've d- and you've done a lot, as you've sort of briefly mentioned, you've done a lot to help other mothers and adoptees. And has that been, I don't know, has, has that helped your journey in some way? Or yeah, what? it did early on. Like I said, I really, I, I really yeah. that network and that I needed those people. I needed my mm. tribe, you know, mm. who could understand, who could relate, who could respect. Yeah. And, and, you know, so it definitely helped me um, and still does. Most of, the, yeah. most of my Facebook friends, and I don't have that many, are all adoption affected individuals, whether yeah. they be adopting. Um, I have a couple of adoptive moms and then most of the um, first moms yeah. as well. So um, we became very close through the years and we still support each other because some of yeah. us have had, you know, better experiences than others. Yeah. Um, but we're still friends. That's wonderful. It's it's amazing how, you know, in the absence of formal support, um, what I'm saying actually, you know, recognition um, at a broader level in government that people will find each other. People will always. And, in fact, in Australia, that's how it started. You know, it all started by people coming together, forming organisations and advocating. So I guess that's happening on a pretty large scale, but it's a work in progress. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. It was great to hear from you again, Jane. We'll connect Thank soon. You. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Mm-hmm.